Well, I have an ambitious endeavor here today. Um, I would like to talk to you about the measure of true spirituality, and I want to do that through the book of 1 Corinthians, in particular chapter 13, which is quite a task. Uh, There's been many, many messages spoken on this chapter and many, many messages spoken on verses in just a verse in this chapter. And my task today is to try to give kind of an overview of the book and just make some observations very briefly. It has to be brief um, to cover what I want to cover. And I just wanted to give a little background. I was reading or listening to actually the, the whole book just on it's really good to do that sometimes, put it on tape and just listen to the whole book. And I was doing that, the whole book of 1 Corinthians, and it, it appeared, it dawned on me that one of the main, I mean, Paul wrote this book to encourage the believers, but he also wrote the book to correct some things that were going on in the Corinthian church. He mentioned specific things. John mentioned uh, one of them this morning, that they were putting emphasis on men rather than Christ. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. But he also mentions quarrels within the church he had heard about and disputes. He mentions <clears throat> that there's, I've heard of this immorality that's going on in the church. Uh, he talks about the use and the misuse of gifts of the spirit, the gifts in, that are given to the church. He talks specifically about jealousy within the church and arrogance within the church and boasting. These were things that were topics that Paul addresses in this letter. And in verse in chapter 12, right preceding this, this 1 Corinthians 13, he talks about spiritual gifts specifically, and he says that the gifts that says there are many members and many gifts and many ministries. And then he says this, but to each one is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. In other words, the gifts of the spirit that are given to individuals are given for the purpose of edifying the church. That's what they're given for. And he mentions how important each member of the body is because they've been gifted with something by God to minister. And so we shouldn't look down on different members. And then in the last verse, he says, I want you to desire the gifts. That's important. Desire the gifts. But I want to show you a more excellent way. Then he goes into verse or chapter 13 After 13, he comes back to talking about the gifts again in chapter 14. And in particular, he emphasizes this gift of tongues, speaking in tongues and interpretation of tongues. Apparently, there was some misuse of that. So he addresses that in that that chapter. But in between, in between those two chapters on the gifts of the Spirit, we have this chapter 13. 
And it's like Paul is wanting to say, to emphasize, how important it is in the church to exercise the gifts of the Spirit in the context of love. Love for one another, love for God, love for one another. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 13, and then just kind of an overview here. The first three chapters, he deals with these gifts of the Spirit or um, great sacrifice in verses 1 through 3. Personal sacrifice, gifts of the Spirit, personal sacrifice, and how it is, if it's not accompanied by love, it's of no benefit to the person. And then in verses 4 through 7, he begins by trying to describe characteristics of love or what love is. And then he ends the chapter coming back to the gifts again and says the reason love is preeminent is because all these gifts are going to pass away. And he gives some examples, some analogies about that. So what I'd like to do is just kind of take it in those sections and kind of briefly talk about them with a few little asides. Told Mason, I better not chase too many rabbits or we'll be here for a long time. (laughs) So let's read the whole chapter to begin with. Verse 1, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, It's not provoked, does not take into account the wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, uh, endures all things. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. And if there is knowledge, it'll be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. So what I hope to do is just kind of go through verse by verse and just kind of hit just kind of the surface. If I speak with tongues of men and angels, obviously with the amount of time Paul spends on chapter 14 on tongues, this was an issue with the... Corinthian church and probably I think it would be safe to assume that some of them were measuring their spirituality by their giftedness in tongues 
And um, I can say from my own experience, uh, when I was first converted and involved in some of the charismatic movement area, um, that was true then, too. Uh, people kind of gauge them, their spirituality by this gift of tongues. I think also, though, that this can also be applied to just speaking, eloquence. You know, there are people who have been gifted <clears throat> with a great ability to speak. And, but it says if there's no love, it's like noise to God. That's what it is. It's like noise to God. And eventually, if you're sitting in that, it'll become noise to you too. <clears throat> he goes on then and says the gift of prophecy. And we tend, tend to think of this as prophetic telling the future, but it's, it's proclaiming God, what God is saying. And so it involves speaking what God wants to speak to the people, speaking from his word. <clears throat> Great insights into the scripture Knowing all mysteries, he says there in verse 2. Prophecy, know all mysteries and knowledge. People can have that. It says great faith. Um, the ability to really pray and see things happen. But there's no love. Paul says, I am nothing. Those are strong words. I am nothing. <clears throat> and then he doesn't mention gifts in verse 3. But he mentions great sacrifice, selling all that you have, giving it to the poor, offering your body to be burned. But if there's no love, it's no benefit to you. There's no profit for you. And um, I remember back in the, I don't remember, the 60s or 70s scene, it was a real vivid image, I think it was in one of the magazines, of a Buddhist monk burning himself, setting himself on fire just sitting there. That's a very painful way to die. And uh, no love, if there's no love, it doesn't benefit. I think he was doing it in protest to something. So then <clears throat> Paul uh, says there in all three of these verses, um, if you don't have love, you're not going to benefit from it. And to ha do not have love means to not act lovingly. That's what it means. And uh, one of the guys I was reading, this Gordon Fee, said, to act lovingly, as in the case of Christ, actively to seek the benefit of, uh, for, of someone else. To have love means to act toward others the way God in Christ has acted towards us. Think how he's, he's been towards you. That's how we're to be. <clears throat> so to walk in love means, in other words, to have a Christ-like behavior. That's what it means. <clears throat> Even though we may be gifted by God, we can use those gifts in a way that is not walking in the Spirit. We can speak, we can prophesy, can do miracles, but if it's not in love, we're not walking in the spirit. It's not going to benefit. <clears throat> um, when we, um, <clears throat> this thing of a noisy gong, it's uh, just like an empty sound, a hollow sound. 
So we think about love and how much emphasis Paul's putting here. It's really important to God. Love is a big thing to God. It's the main thing. And um, the Bible tells us that because it says that's the way God is. God is love. And in 1 John chapter 4, there's two places in that chapter where John says, <clears throat> the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And then he also says a few verses later, we have come to know and be have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. <clears throat> now, Paul is not saying, and this is what I want to emphasize, he's not saying that the people who hear the word of God don't ben benefit from it. That's not what he's saying. He's saying the one proclaiming it, is a, he doesn't get any benefit. The one hearing it and obeying it will benefit. You will benefit from the word of God if you obey it. And um, <clears throat> really, it's the same thing. It's exactly the same thing that Jesus said of the Pharisees. Matthew 23 is the chapter where he talks about, it's the chapter, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. Well, the very first three verses of, the, of that chapter, Jesus it says, Jesus spoke to the crowds and his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses, put themselves in a place of authority. Therefore, all that they tell you, the teaching, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds. For they say things and they do not do them. In other words, what Christ is saying is, they're proclaiming, if they're proclaiming the truth, you obey it. You obey the truth of God. And you will receive blessing. But don't copy their lifestyle. That's what he's saying. Because they're hypocrites. Don't do that. <clears throat> You know, the word of God is going to be the word of God regardless of how it's proclaimed. It's still the word of God. And Isaiah said this, Isaiah 55, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but I shall accomplish that which I purpose, and I shall succeed in the thing for which I, and it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. <clears throat> so, person may say the be speaking right from the bible they may have ulterior motives they may have wrong attitudes but the word of god is the word of god and if it's the word of god you should obey it and you'll receive blessing when you do paul then goes on to talk about these characteristics of love in the next three verses but i want to i want a little aside here one thing I noticed, <clears throat> and I don't know if maybe I noticed this just for the first time, I don't know, but I, it was brought clear to me uh, this last couple of weeks when I've been thinking about this, is how similar the description here that Paul gives, how similar that is 
to Galatians 5.22 and 23. Now 5.22 and 23 is where Paul talks about the gifts of the, or the fruit of the Spirit. And, um, and I just wanted to um, read you. I want you to look at verses 4 through 7. Just look at them as I read Galatians 5, 22 and 23 to you. And just see the parallel here. <clears throat> but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now, <clears throat> that's the fruit of the Spirit. What, are the, what is the fruit of the Spirit? It's characteristics of Christ. Christ is gentle. Christ is patient. Christ was faithful. And when you look at love is patient, Christ was patient. Love is kind, Christ was kind. Such, because what it is, it's a describing what Christ is like. And it only makes sense that when Paul says the fruit of the Spirit, it's going to have Christ-likeness in it. See, that's what, see what happens, <clears throat> the, the fruit of the Spirit is implanted in you. And it's, it bears fruit, and that fruit is Christ-likeness. You know, one of the differences between a gift and fruit is that a gift is imparted to a person. It's given to a person for the purpose of edification of the church. It's a little different than fruit. Fruit is implanted in the person by the Holy Spirit to yield Christ-like qualities, holiness in the life of the Christian. And so in that sense, you can see why this description of love in 1 Corinthians 13 is so parallel with Galatians 5. It's the Holy Spirit putting in the heart of the believer. Even in seed form, it's in seed form, but it's there. He implants that. <clears throat> and that will, that means that it'll grow because the Holy Spirit did it. And there's, there's different times of maturity in these things so that we can grow in these things. That's the, that's the main thing. means that we can grow in areas of Christ-likeness in our life. And God has promised that. Paul says in First Corinthians or Philippians one six, He who has begun a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So that perf that fruit is going to grow and grow and be more and more evident in the life of a true believer. <clears throat> There's another distinction between gifts and fruit. Gifts can be counterfeited. And we see that gifts like powerful things, miracles, can be counterfeited. You see it in the Old Testament when uh, Moses went to Pharaoh and he threw the staff down and it became a snake. And the magicians in Egypt did the same thing and they became snakes. Of course, 
Moses swallowed it up. But point is, is they were able to do miraculous things. There's evil spirits with evil powers that are able to do miraculous things, supernatural things. You see this also being taught by the Lord himself in Matthew 7, where he talks about the context is false prophets, and he says this, he makes this statement in verse, um, it's verse 22. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. So many miracles in his name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So, just saying this, apparently there can be great demonstrations of power that can be devoid of the Spirit of God. And we have that. So what's the test? How do we know? What's the test? Well, in this same context in Matthew 7, Jesus talks about you will know them by their fruits. Their fruits in their life. That's how you're going to know them. That's how you're going to discern. And then he brings up one other distinction. I'm not going to go into it because I'll go into it later. And that is that gifts are temporary. But love, he brings out, is eternal because that's who God is. It doesn't pass away. All the gifts will pass away. They're necessary for now. They are necessary for now, but they are going to pass away. It's not that they're not important. Paul tells us that we should pursue them or to seek them. But he's saying that in the church, they're necessary for right now. In this age that we live, they're necessary. That's what he's saying. But it's very important to understand that the measure of true spirituality is not giftedness, but Christ-likeness. That's the measure, being conformed to the character of Christ. That's what we, that's our barometer. Love for God, love for others. That's what Jesus said. That's all the law and the commandments Right there. Love for God and love for others. So Paul is just saying again, true spirituality is being conformed to the image of Jesus. In other words, being like him in the way we act, in our relationships with one another. Okay, now let's look at... uh, Verses 4 through 7. Love is patient. King James says long-suffering for patience. Long-suffering. And sometimes it means what that says. There There is some suffering over a period of time with patience. And... uh, Here's what Mr. Henry says, Matthew Henry, I can endure it can endure evil, injury, and provocation without being filled with resentment, indignation, or revenge. 
It will put up with many slights and neglects from the person it loves and wait long to see the kindly effects of such patience on them, or such uh, patience on them. So, in short, love is not in a hurry. It's not in a hurry to see immediate results. It's patient. Um, you wait and you trust the Lord. You're not necessarily trusting the person. You're not trusting in something else. You wait and you trust the Lord to work in you, to work in you, and to work in the situation, and to work in others. It waits, it trusts. <clears throat> I remember one time when I was teaching, had a kid in my class, I just could not, I'll be honest, I had a real hard time liking this kid. Just some things he had done previously, and years past, and I was going to nail him when he came into my class. I was going to get him. And I was really convicted about that. And I really had to pray and ask God to help me with my attitude towards that kid. And over a year time of having him in my class and just being patient, I really saw God work in me first. That's what, that's what happened. God worked in me, changing me in my attitude towards that person. And lo and behold, he changed the kid a little too, I think. But uh, it just was an example to me of how God, when we're talking about being patient, God changes us too, not just them. <clears throat> it says love is kind. It's courteous and obliging. Proverbs 31, in describing the godly woman, says this about her. The law of kindness is on her lips. Think about that. What's that, what's that a description of you? The law of kindness is on your lips. Somebody, one of the commentators says, her heart is large, her hand is open. She's ready to show favors and to do good. She seeks to be useful. Think about that. That's her general character. That was the way she was. <clears throat> so the kind person is just easy to be around. You've been around people like that. They're just easy to be around. They're not harsh. They're not irritable. They're not so rough. They're just easy to be around, kind. Love is not jealous. <clears throat> Does not get upset at the good of others. It's able to rejoice with those who rejoice. Think about this situation. You have a son or a daughter, and they've applied for some thing, job, school, whatever, and they get the job, and they are elated. They're so happy. What's your response as a parent? You are just as happy as they are. You're rejoicing with them. You rejoice with them for, what's, for the good that's happened to them. You're not jealous of them. You're rejoicing with them. Well, that's the way it is <clears throat> for the Christian. Love for others has that same effect. You don't go around saying they don't deserve it. 
you're glad for them. You want the best for them. You're not envious of them. You know, when you look at the Old Testament in the, Bi- in the Bible, and even in the New Testament, you'll see how many times, illustration after illustration of the disastrous effect of jealousy on personal relationships. It destroys them. Andrew mentioned this in the worship, the, the messages on worship with Cain and Abel. Cain killed his brother. He was jealous of him. Angry at God, jealous of his brother. You see it in Genesis 37 with Jacob's sons. They were jealous of Joseph. What do they do? They sell him into slavery. Go to the New Testament. Acts 5, the high priest and associates are filled with jealousy with the apostles. What do they have to do? Put them in jail. Acts 13, the Jews were jealous of Paul and Barnabas, and they drove them out of Antioch. Jealousy tears down. It's the exact opposite of love. Love builds up. Love covers. This, this jealousy tears down. It absolutely destroys relationships in families, in churches, in working relationships at, on the job. destroys relationships. Love does not brag. It's not arrogant. <clears throat> in other words, it does not promote itself. It doesn't look with contempt at others or look down on others. There's no condescension or dismissiveness of that person with love. That doesn't exist. Rather, here's what love does. Romans 12, 10. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Give preference. You're not dismissive or condescending. You give preference to them. Paul says exactly the same thing in Philippians. With humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. And Paul... It's that idea of giving preference to the other person. It's the opposite of being selfish. You cannot be loving and selfish or self-promoting at the same time. Love looks away from self. One commentator put it this way, arrogance is devoid of love and love is devoid of arrogance. They are mutually exclusive. They They can't exist together. Love does not act unbecomingly. Unbecoming. (laughs) Doesn't act unbecoming. That's a word we don't use much. ESV maybe makes it a little clearer for you. It's not rude. It's not rude. It's polite to all, regardless of who they are. Polite even when there's a disagreement. You're not rude in the disagreement. It never acts unseemly. It acts consistently being polite at all times. 
We don't use the word unbecoming very often. You just don't hear that very much. But if you think of the word becoming, it means something that suits or gives a pleasing effect, um, <clears throat> pleasing effect or an attractive appearance to a person or a thing. So an example would be someone has a new outfit on and you say, oh, that lo- that's very becoming to you, that outfit. Well, what's that mean? It means it looks good on you. It really fits who you are. That outfit looks good on you. It fits who you are. So that's the way love is for the Christian. It looks good on you. It fits who you really are. And to act in a way that doesn't fit who you really are, there's something jarring about that, isn't there? It contradicts who you really are. We sure don't want that. You belong to Christ, and you want your behavior to adorn your profession, not contradict your profession. Your behavior should adorn your profession. Love does not seek its own. This is very similar to what I mentioned. It's not selfish. It doesn't seek its own way. And I, I really like the way ESV puts it. Love doesn't insist on its own way. Got to have it my way. It doesn't seek its own honor. It doesn't seek its own praise or its own profit. Love's desire is for the best for the other person. This is really, uh, you have to listen to this, but this is really an excellent quote by Matthew Henry. Charity never seeks its own to the hurt of others or with the neglect of others, but often, often, it's amazing, it neglects its own and seeks for the sake of others. It neglects its own for the sake of others. And it prefers their welfare and satisfaction and advantage to its own. It's just the opposite. It's not seeking its own. It, for, it, it actually neglects its own sometimes for the sake of someone else. You know, Paul... <clears throat> Just a few chapters earlier, in chapter 10, he says this to the Corinthians. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. And then a few verses after that in the same chapter. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. And then Paul Of course, you can't talk about this without thinking of Paul's example of the supreme example of not seeking your own. In Philippians 2, he says, Jesus, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to. But what? He emptied himself. He emptied himself, taking form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Jesus didn't seek his own. He emptied himself for you and for me. 
That's what he did. That was his life. That's the way he was. That's our goal, to, to emulate our master, to live like that. <clears throat> and it says love is not provoked. ESV says, I think it says irritable. It's not, it's not irritable. One commentator put it this way, and I thought it was really good. Love tempers and restrains the passions. Love tempers and restrains the compassion. Think about the day we live in, the age we live in. I think it would be fair to say that we live in a day and age where there is a lack of restraint, a lack of restraint. See, love restrains. There's a lack of it. You see it everywhere, social media all the time, blasting people. You see it at Little League baseball games, parents in the stands last year fighting with each other over an 11-year-old ball game, adult parents surrounding a high school kid who's calling the game threatening the umpire. He's a high school kid. These are adults. Lack of restraint. You see it in road rage. How many times it's in the news. Just someone irritated. Someone cut them off so they ram them. Lack of restraint. You see it in grocery stores. Go to Walmart. It's in kids, it's in the parents. Lack of restraint. It's almost as if to tell somebody off is considered a virtue by some. It's virtuous. I put them in their place. Lack of restraint. Listen, when you walk in this day and age exercising restraint, you walk in love and are Christ-like in your responses, you are going to stand out because it is such a contrast to the way things are. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered or is not resentful. In other words, just short, love forgives. Doesn't take into account. Doesn't keep score in relationships. You did this to me, I'm going to do that, I'm going to get back. And I'm justified in doing it because of what you did to me. Love isn't like that. One person put it this way, think of a bookkeeper who flips through the pages of his ledger to reveal what has been received and what has been spent. And he's able to give an exact account of what came in and what went out. Some people have relationships like that. They're keeping track. It's like a ledger. It's devastating. You see a relationship like that, it is sad. 
And apart from the grace of God, it's not going to survive very long. That tit for tat type of thing. Not going to happen. There must be forgiveness. And that is one of the characteristics of love. That's one of the characteristics of Christ. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but it rejoices in the truth. <clears throat> this one commentator I was reading says, As love characterizes God, so evil describes the devil. Love takes note of the evil in this world, but it never, ever gloats over it. It never does that. Instead, it grieves over the sins of humankind. There's grief It's sad. When we see people sin and they're unrighteous and they've done wicked things and they get, quote, what they deserve, you grieve. It's fearful. You don't have that attitude because that's not the attitude of God. Listen listen to what um, God tells Ezekiel. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? God is telling Ezekiel, plead with the people to repent. I don't want to destroy them. I don't want to do that. That's our attitude, too. Plead. We don't want, we don't rejoice over unrighteousness. We rejoice in the truth. And then he kind of concludes this little section here by saying, Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And I think this word bears, it, it, uh, when I looked it up, it, it can also be used to cover or to um, bear up under, to support, or to protect. Uh, it's used, it can be used in those ways. And I think the idea here of bears all things is the same idea that you get in 1 Peter 4.8 where it says love covers a multitude of sins. It's covering it. It's protecting the, that person. And um, <clears throat> you see the same thing in Proverbs 10, where it says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers the offense. And in Proverbs 17:9, whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. So that's kind of what I think it means. And then this believes all things doesn't mean that love is lacking in wisdom and discernment and is gullible and can be duped. The reason we know that is because God is love, and God's not duped, and he's not gullible. He's very wise and discerning. And I think what this is alluding to is that our belief isn't in in the person. Our belief is in God. That's who we believe in. And um, so love trusts God in some of these difficult, difficult situations. Love trusts God to sort things out when we just can't seem to at the moment. 
We believe God to do that. And then he says, hope's all things. One commentator said, hope is patient, waiting for positive results that eventually may be realized. And it never focuses on the person or us. It's focused on our hope is in God. And you read through the Psalms, it is filled. My hope is in God. My hope is in God. My hope is in God. That's where our hope is. And then endures all things is pretty, I think, pretty self-explanatory there. It's just, it's perseverance. Love doesn't give up. Does not give up. And then very briefly, I just want to kind of conclude this with the last section here. And it's the longest section, but it's going to be the shortest for me because I think the whole section is just dealing with one topic. And that is that Love is permanent. All the gifts are passing away. That's what it's... So look at it here. Love never fails. Why? God is love. God never fails. Love never fails, but these gifts will be done away with. All of them will. They'll cease. They'll be done away with. Verse 10, or 9 and 10, he talks about, For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes... Partial will be done away. Again, he's talking in part and perfect. When the in part is right now, we're in the church age right now. We know in part, we prophesy in part, but there's a day coming that's all going to pass. We're going to be with the Lord. That'll pass away. You also see that same idea in verse 12. Now, he uses the words now and then. Now in the age that we're in, then in the age to come. But he uses this, it's interesting analogy, the child and adult. And remember, in this section, he's contrasting temporalness of gifts, permanence of love. Um, But he uses child and adult, and I don't think that it's so much a contrast in immaturity and maturity, but I think it's the idea of appropriateness. In childhood, certain things are appropriate and necessary in the state that they're in. But when they reach adulthood, it wouldn't be appropriate for that anymore. And I think what he's saying here is in the church age that we're in right now, he's talking about gifts. They're very necessary and appropriate right now for the church, for the benefit of the church. But when we get to the, be with the Lord, that's not appropriate anymore. We're with him. That's what he, I think that's what he's saying here. And he says that he uses a similar thing with uh, verse 12, with the mirror, seeing, face to, seeing in a mirror and seeing face to face. Now we see dimly. It's not that what we see is, is distorted. If you really see the Lord, it's not that it's a distorted image of the Lord, but it's not as clear as it will be someday. You'll see more clearly then. <clears throat> and so these, these comparisons now and then, I really think what he's alluding to is the age we're in now and what's going to come. And even at the very end where he says, faith, hope, and love abide these three The greatest of these is love because, beloved, we live by faith right now. When when we get to be with the Lord, we're not going to be living by faith. 
We're going to be living by sight. We're going to see him. We're going to be with him. And the hope that we have right now of being with the Lord and the Lord's return, that hope that we have, it's all going to be realized when we're with him. So they're very important right now for the Christian in the life that we have. But there's a day coming when the faith and hope even, those two big things are going to drop off. The only thing that's going to remain is love, love for the Lord. And he's the one that remains. He's eternal. Now, just in closing, I just want to tell you what I took from this preparation. Okay, two things that I took from it. I don't know what you'll take from it, but this is what I got out of it. One, true spirituality is determined by Christ-likeness in our lives, in our relationships, and not by any gifts that we receive. Character of Christ being formed in us is the true measure of our spirituality. And then the second thing is, when we read things like this, and we say, man, I don't measure up there. None of us do. None of us do. We all fall in this area of loving like Christ loved. But the right response to it is, ask forgiveness and ask God to change you and help you and make you more Christ-like in your attitudes towards other people. To not be so selfish, to not be so uh, unkind, but to just be more like Christ. That's what we need. We all need that. And uh, we need to be pressing on in that area. Well, let's pray. Father, you know how much we need the Holy Spirit to help us in this more than we know. We fall so far short of the life of Christ, and yet that's our desire. And you have promised that the work that you have begun, you will perfect in that day. And so, Lord, help us to really walk humbly before you and to be quick, quick, quick to repent, to ask forgiveness of you and of others, and to grow. Lord, help us to grow in this area of being kind and just areas of love that we talked about. Lord, we need your help to do that. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.